and welcome to episode 105 of the Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shay Beeps. Stanislav, you know what I had today? I'll give you 75 guesses. Was it a Chicago-style hot dog? I really wish I would eat, I would slam a vegetarian Chicago style hot dog in a hot second. You mean with like a carrot instead of the all beef Frank? <laughs> I can't think of a more self-negating phrase than vegetarian Chicago style hot dog. Hey, the dog the dog is just there as a vessel for the sport pep and the celery salt and other salty things that I like on the hot dog. Seasoned onions. What'd you eat, Shane? I had I uh, had a vegan queso dip. And it was extremely good. It tasted more queso than real queso. And I'm all about that, that vegan queso life. Give me that weird cashew, weird cashew stuff. Cutting you off right there to introduce the godfather, Dave Harburger. Dave, please cleanse my palate. Tell me about some meat. I've just been having a lot of ham lately. You know, you get these Christmas hams and it's, then you're just real hammy for the next week. Oh, I've been eating that salty pork for like four days straight now. That's great. Because <sighs> holiday hams are so salty, but so good. So salty. Guys, you know what I did? I, I had to glaze it myself because Honey Baked Ham's website wasn't working. Oh, and no. I the glaze that I made was brown sugar and mustard and Coke. Oh, hell yeah. Cherry Coke. Ooh. It, yeah, it was great. That sounds yeah, good. Yeah, it sounds great. My, my mother-in-law made some ham. I did not eat the ham. I ate the sides. And I didn't miss it. I'm going to tell myself I didn't miss it, but I probably did. Shane, was was you talking about vegan cheese? Us, you letting us know that you're moving on to the next level. We're next going. Year? We're gonna. We're gonna try dairy free. We're trying dairy free next. Still Whoa. eggs. Still eggs. But okay. getting rid of the dairy. See what happens. I'm not a big. I'm not a milkman, but I, I do like the cheese. I mean, it's just it's hard milk, right? It is just hard, salty milk. Oh God, so much umami. And stay <gasps> tuned for other things you'll learn about 2020 <laughs> on this week's episode, Stan. I do like milk. I enjoy a nice glass of milk. Does the body good. How do you like a glass of cheese? Cold. Okay. And and soft. (laughs) Fair. On this week's episode, it is our long-awaited annual year-end review. You've been waiting since last December for this episode, and it is finally out. I cannot believe this year is ending in four days. I know. I'm going to miss it. We're going to be taking stock of Magic the Gathering in the year 2020. Perhaps a year that will live in infamy, even though nothing bad happened and we loved every minute of it. Don't call it a clip show, but it's basically a clip show. And to kick it off with everyone's favorite clip, it's housekeeping. Of course. All right. Well, let's, let's do some fast housekeeping. We got, we got a lot of content. All right. So I think we should take our time with this part. Okay. Yeah. The patrons. <laughs> Daniel B. Purple Platt. Josh S. Thank you for joining uh, the nation. Citizens of the Dive Down Nation, we appreciate you. Purple Platt, we see you right there in the Twitch chat. Uh, you've all, you've been there for a number of weeks, and thanks for finally uh, becoming a citizen, getting your naturalization papers. Yeah, and just remember, before Shane gets to the Patreon plug, hey, we, twi- we Twitch stream this every Monday night now. So come and check it out if you want to come and hang out. This is going to be a loose one, so you're going to miss the loose one. Next week, we're going to be back to our, our book bookish ways <laughs> to our very strict formulas that's right come and hang out at the dive down underscore chain twitch tv channel to uh, see how the sausage is made it's you know it's it's been a lot easier to do than i anticipated 
we we mess up less than I thought is really what it comes down to. I like to call the Monday Night Twitch streams our weekly mustache ride. Do you? I think of them more as mustache assessments, but for yeah. the rest of the week, how's how prepared is your facial hair for the coming week, Stan? Stan, you're looking like a B plus right now. Seeming good. Oh, that that beard's an A minus. That's a, that's a that's a sleeve minus for sure. Okay. Uh, Patreon, you can become a citizen of the Dive Down Nation. Head on over to patreon.com slash the Dive Down. Best way to support us. We appreciate all of you supporting us throughout this year. You know, it's I, earlier in the beginning of the year, I thought that we might, you know, people's finances were hit in un, un, unthinkable ways, right? I'm sure a lot of you have had an impact on your life that you weren't expecting. Uh, almost all of you have stuck with us. And we've had so many more citizens join the nation, and it's been awesome. The community has grown, has become stronger, has become more fun, has has more voices in it. And for that, we truly appreciate you. You've made it so easy to keep doing what we're doing. And honestly, I don't think we can thank you enough. You You make it possible for us to keep doing this. I think there's one last lingering thank you. Maybe I... Didn't hear it and it happened, but in case it didn't happen, shout out to Mickey S for going up a tier in their Patreon support. Thanks, Mickey. I, I think he's trying to convince me to play a Yorion Neoform deck in Historic. Well, is, is Mickey S a new patron? I haven't really heard his name in the past. This is this is the first we've ever mentioned a Mickey S ever. I, okay. Either Mickey S. Yeah, and if you'd like to support the show while playing Magic the Gathering, there's a couple ways to do that too. Of course, there's Mana Traders, the Magic Online rental service. If you use coupon code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first three months of the Magic Online rental service there. Also, if you're on Arena, you can check out the Untapped Arena Companion over at untapped.thedivedown.com. That's right, we got a little vanity URL to make it really easy for you. You don't have to spend any money, just like all of Arena, free to support the dive down by downloading the untapped companion software over at untapped.thedivedown.com. All right. And from here, this episode is just going to go right off the rails. Am I right? Immediately. It's gotta. Yeah. Stan, we tell really, us how we're going we off. We really should have prepared some notes for this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So here's There's only 16 pages. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to reflect on the last year of magic. We're going to talk about things like the novel coronavirus. We're going to talk about things like historic. We're going to talk about things like our bad takes on cards and decks. And we're going to start that at the very beginning of the year, dial the clock back 12 whole months, January 2020, before COVID was a concern. What was life like pre-Rona? Man, I mean, for me, it was really a lot about still being really into Pioneer, looking at Theros Beyond Death coming out, you know, looking at, I was you know, planning on the, the big Pioneer GP in Phoenix in February. We had other GPs in, uh, for Pioneer that we were excited about in uh, Europe and Asia. And I think we were just getting, we were really excited about, I think, the coming year of magic, right? Like it's just, you know, it's a fresh start. And the coming year of just like existence, generally. Existence, yeah. yes. Yeah, we were excited to go back to fan favorite plane of Theros, always sunny in Theros. There was a brief period where I fled the country for a couple of weeks. You guys remember that? Were you in Amsterdam? That's right. You like hanging out, dude, dude doing like pre-releases and like cool game bars and stuff. That that was me. Ah, so jealous. 
Around the same time, we had Todd Anderson on to talk about Chonky Red, the hottest new deck in Pioneer, the hottest new format in Magic. I remember that, like back when we would have guests to talk about Pioneer deck techs. Shortly after Theros came out, we did a deck dive on this new up-and-coming deck in Modern, Heliod Combo. Whatever happened to that deck? Oh, wait, <laughs> it's still one of the best decks in Modern. Yeah, I mean... I'm I'm a I'm a hundred percent hyped to play us in paper once we get paper again. Like I, I I can't believe we we called a lot of this right. Like we we called we were hyped about this deck. We called Conclave Mentor. We were hyped about Skyclave Apparition. We were on top of this one. Not that any of us played it on Magic Online. I'd never play this deck on Magic Online. No way. <laughs> never. All you have to do is right click and save targets. Shane, you're on top of a lot of magic this year. You mentioned you made day two of the Pioneer GP in Phoenix. Well, I didn't mention it. I was, it was gonna like at least five times this episode, though. So that happened. Talk about that later for sure. And then March rolls around. Yeah, I mean, it's just impossible to have a show about 2020 without talking about the novel coronavirus, right? And the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's probably been the most significantly impactful event of most of, if not all of our lives. And the effects of this are going to echo for years to come. And we want to respect the individual impact that this has likely had on every one of your lives out there. But we kind of have to focus on the impact it had on Magic the Gathering. So bear with us. We don't want to sound like we're uh, callous or coarse or not uh, sympathetic to that. I mean, it impacted all of us too. Uh, I don't have a job, right? Like this, you know, this is some real deal stuff, right? People have had family and friends get sick. Um, Hopefully not worse than that. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. And uh, we get to focus on the bad stuff of Magic the Gathering, which is my favorite thing to focus on. Why are we focusing on the bad stuff? It wasn't all bad for Magic. Okay, you can focus on the positive stuff, and I'll focus on the negative. Sounds like the reason we started this podcast. Yeah, and I'll jump back and forth supporting you both in your endeavors. I mean, when COVID hit, SCG Tour canceled. The GPs and all CFB events canceled. NCAA, NCAA March Madness canceled. LGS play. I mean, Stan, you and I were at a tournament the week before. That's right. And you know what saved us? Hand sanitizer to every table. I mean, they tried. I definitely remember waking up that morning and being like, should I go to, to this? Where'd you should go? I Remind still me. go to this? It was Where- an abandoned old ghost mall. <laughs> It was well, what tournament? When? It was uh, it was SCG Regionals hosted oh, by yeah. uh, Chicago's fine pastimes game store, well known ter- tournament organizer in their own right. And yeah, it was at least what two hundred people in the tournament. It was a big tournament. When did that happen? Like late Feb, early March? No, it was it was the week before, maybe oh, or crap. maybe two weeks before the shutdown actually happened. So I feel like Stan and I were at one of the last big paper tournaments, certainly in the Chicago area. Anyway, that's wild. But we found a way around this whole mess, and all of a sudden, both high-level and independent online tournaments became uncancelled. Nerd Rage Gaming in Chicago started hosting MTGO events. I got to play in one of those in a special invite-only event that then got streamed later on. I did not do well. We've mentioned this on recent episodes. The SCG Tour is now online. Mm-hmm. Lotus Box introduced an online tournament series. Mana Traders did. Mana Trader is one of the big ones. Probably the most cash someone could make winning a Magic online tournament right now. That's saying something. Of course, there's the Arena Opens that Dave spiked recently on his path to the Pro Tour. Yeah, and then even the members of our community who we've talked about so many times stepped up and put together their own tournaments to be able to interact with each other online and scratch that Magic 
paper itch even you know spell table i'm sure you know play groups all over the world were doing similar things and i think that you know this really became a um i mean it was certainly a nice thing for me to see as part of the community i haven't been able to go to a lot of the events but i think that it's probably helped a lot of people out with just feeling like they were still connected to each other at a time that you can't really be face to face anymore and so i think that's a big positive Totally. And, and a lot of these, I think, could not be possible if it weren't for the mtgmelee.com platform to host tournaments for people all over the world simultaneously and, and really beautifully so. So whether or not you want to set up a little tournament for your friend group, wherever you are, you can do that MTG Melee. Or you can sign up for bigger tournaments through Lotus Box or um, SCG on the website as well. So it's bridging all gaps. So if you want to support the dive down, go to mtgmelee.com slash the dive down, sign up. You can't actually do that, but yeah, we, these years. we're not really affiliated with Melee yet. Yeah. So this lack of paper tournaments had a significant impact on some of these formats and, you know, maybe all of them in, in some way. Like let's, let's start with, you know, our first format, right? Let's talk about modern and potentially how let's focus a little bit here about how lack of paper tournaments might have impacted modern because I'm kind of unsure how to look at modern this year, right? Like it feels like it's always to me just been there and been fine and been consistent. And then I look at the year we actually had of modern and it was a little bumpier and crazier than I remember. Like in January we had some big bands. We've, we lost Oko, which we kind of expected would happen, right? Yeah. No surprise there. Yeah, Mycosynth Lattice, which was a big hit to the Karn the Great Creator sort of based strategies, and the ban of the surprisingly resilient Monx Opal. So a card that people have seen as on the bubble for years even, uh, finally went in January. Yeah, and this was a huge shift to the, the metagame, right? I mean, I think people forget a year ago, you know, we were talking a lot about Warza and Affinity was floating around and you know, Oko Hardened was scales. everywhere. We didn't think Oko was going to stay, but yeah, Hardened Scales was a staple. Exactly, Stan. Um, Lantern Control. Yeah, all of those Mox Opal decks that made up such a huge portion of of the metagame, I think when you really think about it, were just suddenly gone one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was a, a big shift to the format in, in general. And then in, in March, of course, we lose Once Upon a Time just because it's such an insane card. Yeah, I'm still sad about that one. Re- realistically, for some reason, I'm just like, I miss it. I do. Was there ever a card that the instant it was spoiled, people were like, this card is a goner, like so quickly, besides maybe like Underworld Reach? I mean, I think those are too prominent on the list for sure. Yeah. Uh, we lose Astrolabe in July, another sort of hit to these multicolor uh, Blood Moon semi-proof artifact based decks. And so like it's tempting to think 2019 was a wild year of magic to me, like at least in you know my headspace, but we only had four cards banned and one unbanned in Stoneforge Mystic last year. And we've had five banned this year. So uh, equal amount of weird card delta and perhaps more impactful this year besides perhaps the unbanning of Stoneforge. Yeah, it's kind of wild to realized that nothing was unbanned this year in modern pioneer had the unbanning of oath of nissa but that's it makes you think 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who are hoping that a few things come off the ban list. It's certainly a popular topic every time we roll around to when there's going to be a banned and restricted announcement. But feels like forever since we've even had one of those. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, there was a lot of people saying that maybe Splinter Twin was going to come off the list towards the end of, you know, August or whatever. But uh, yeah. And then we have, you know, companions showed up. They had a huge impact on the, you know, the metagame of almost every format. Talk about those later in the episode in more depth, perhaps. Yeah, but it's it's super important to point out that there was a ex- totally extreme era of all of these formats that existed for two months, was yeah, it? Just where outrageous. The, where the companions just worked the way that they originally designed, and it totally changed magic for like two months, basically. And and now we're back to something that much more resembles the game of the before time, but the companions are still there. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm getting at is like, there weren't a ton of paper tournaments at all to make a significant impact on the modern meta itself. But the format did, did have dynamic meta shifts, like new decks arrived, old decks kind of have been sunset. There's a few of them. I think that are just lingering on the outskirts of the format now. And players are still seemingly and continually, you know, interested in, in it and playing it often you know the the modern streamers get a lot of eyes on them uh people still talk about the format people still play the format do you think this year contributed to modern in a positive way is the format healthier or more fun now than where it was this time last year or has more harm been done i think one thing has clearly contributed to a more fun modern i think or a more open in some ways modern i think there's a lot of different ways to dance around this but i think the lack of pro player attention on this format has ultimately been proven to be what i think we all actually want out of magic i think we don't want it to be a pro tour format and so there's been less consolidation less eyes trying to think about making it into like how do we break the format in a new way and I think that's been good. There's been a lot of brewing. I think a, a number of people have kind of shown that there's like wild, weird deck diversity going on in modern. There are it, there are a lot of shells like innovating around certain pillars of the format. But I still think that if you look through a general 5.0 list these days, you're going to see some wild, interesting stuff almost every dump, basically. Do you guys remember who won the la- or what deck won the last modern Pro Tour? Pro Tour. Well, I don't even remember when the last modern Pro Tour like was. I think it was Tron. Was it Green Tron? Mono Green Tron. Yes. <laughs> and and that's what you're afraid of, Dave. Too much Tron. No, but it's just in the past people have. That's been a platform that has broken modern a number of times and also forced people into more defined lanes. I think where I think that right now we have a very. You know, they, they used to call it the long tail. I think what we have is a really long tail in modern right now where there's a few decks that are kind of high and a bunch of decks that are very low in meta share. And that seems to be like a fun experience for most people. I think when they come into modern, because there's a lot of, a lot of what you can do with this eternal format is pick a deck that uh, emphasizes your character, like your personality and kind of stick with it. You can have an identity there. We've talked about this a bunch of times and I think it became a a little more true over the year in, in some ways. Now, there are some lingering, there are some problems on the horizon, I think. I think there's always problems on the horizon in a format like this, but I think it's been kind of positive. Yeah, like one thing that I've personally found interesting, and I think I kind of like it, but I'm not sure if everyone does, is that some of like the old 
stalwarts of modern have almost officially been outclassed right now. Um, at least until maybe bans happen. Like, like, look, I mean, these decks will show up and they're going to win now and then because magic is a thing. But you know, let, let's look at, here's some stuff that's less than 2% of the meta according to Goldfish right now. And they get a pretty large swath of data, right? So we have got Grixis Death Shadow, Wurza, Five Color Niv, Devoted Devastation, Azorius and Bant Stoneblade, Eldrazi Tron, Ponza, Jund, Dredge, burn humans you know these these decks are something that you may have seen at eight to ten percent of the metagame at some times and i think there's a lot of reasons why this is the case and i think dave got to some of those earlier which is like one there's sort of no tournament consolidation where people are like oh this is a 60 percent deck because i have so much data showing me that's the case and i'm going to play it because i know it's like the best deck um but what other reasons do you all think like we're seeing sort of this flattening of I, the meta? I, before we do this, I want to know I want I want to hear why you like this. Oh, like why, why do you like want to bury these old these old decks? <sighs> and I also I have I, mean, a, I also have some problems with your um your precepts of the argument as well, but, but ooh, go ahead. My goodness, a precept. That might not be the right <laughs> word. That seems like a bad word. So why I like it is like, I think seeing Jund in 2020 is just kind of boring. Like, but in like full seriousness, like I don't, I don't, I don't feel like people who bought into a deck, like let's say five color Niv should feel like their deck is trash now. And that like pillar of Peruns was like a dumb pickup on their part because they were under the impression that modern was a less dynamic format than it has seemingly been this year. Um, but I'm also willing to bet that like five color Niv is a fine deck and the dedicated fans of the deck versus people who sort of bought into it because they thought it was like the best tier one thing to be doing for a month. I think that those people are so fine. Right. I just like some churn. Like even humans was briefly back, like a sort of a tier one deck for like a month or so, like a few months ago, maybe until like the four color Uro Omnath piles proved too challenging for it. But that's kind of like where I am. I think the churn is interesting. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's weird that we're talking. I, I, I think that we both like the outcome of having more decks in the format, but I, I would challenge the notion that something being 2% of the meta means that it is out of, of modern. I guess, I guess I'm looking at like the Delta, like from where it began to where it is. Yeah. But I have some numbers to back this up that shows how many decks are still live in a format. Let's say, give me the numbers. So I, I just think that this is a good indicator of format diversity more than anything else, realistically. And so if you think about like the way that the formats work right now, you know, it's I have some back of the napkin math here from Goldfish's recent metagame page, which is not always the best math, but it's kind of the best data that we have right now. The concentration of the meta in modern is the lowest of any of the formats right now. Okay. The top deck, according to Goldfish, is Uro Omnath, which is 6.1% of the metagame at the moment. It's the only major format with no deck above 10% of the meta. And when I say that major format, I'm counting standard, pioneer, historic, modern, and legacy within that. Modern is the only one that the top deck is not 10% or more of the meta. So if you think about that number, it's the only one that's less than 10%. The other number that we bring out is that there are 31 decks on Goldfish's metagame page that are above 1.0% of the of the yep. metagame supposedly 31 decks which i think is 
amazing if you really think about it. Because if you compare it to Pioneer, where the top deck in Pioneer is 31% Omnath with only 18 decks above I mean, 1%, Historic. Do you think 13? Is it oh, 13%? Because Historic, I thought, has like 31% or oh. Yeah, this Pioneer, is Pioneer. Right? Yeah, Pioneer has 13.4% okay. of Omnath right now with 18 decks. Historic has 31% with Uro Mid being the top deck there. There's only 12 decks above 1% in Historic, according to Goldfish. Now, that data is suspect, I think, a little bit more on Goldfish sure. for Historic. And then Legacy is 12% Snowco with only with 30 decks above That's 1%. That's impressive. So, Legacy is close to the same diversity, but not as much, uh, but some more consolidation at the top. So I think this is a sign of like what we've said is that modern has kind of decent format diversity right now. And in some way that's, that's like a self-fulfilling thing because if less people pick up the best deck, then diversity kind of maintains and people can have their fun basically. And I'm totally okay at this point with modern being like the place where we go to have casual spike fun. That's kind of what it feels like. It's returned to in some ways. And I've seen lots of cool things come over the last year. Now, if you notice from what I said, all of those decks have have Uro <laughs> and Omnath at the top of the list, uh, depending on what's uh, what's available in their given formats. For example, you know, Omnath is suspended in historic, which I think is problematic in itself. But um I think this is a great thing. I think it's it's a a good format right now. Um even though there's some frustrations playing against some decks like Oops All Spells and things like that. Stan, what do you think? Like, what what's your take on how modern evolved in 2020 and where it stands right now? I think so. Dave makes this interesting point about with the lack of pro tours and the lack of professional level attention to the format, you see less consolidation toward what a potential or perceived best deck is. And I think there is a little bit of flip side to that, where while it's certainly good that we have this huge long tail, I think the thing that we're missing is as a result really as a result of the lack of any paper play and most modern events being consolidated to a finite community of Magic Online players, is that you have a lower rate of innovation. And I think what you end up is with people like Aspiring Spike and maybe some other streamers whose whole goal in their Magic career is to try to find new ways to innovate and and new cards to break. You don't have as much, like team channel fireball doing that and i think that's kind of a whole level of modern that we are missing this year for better or for worse and i i kind of agree with dave that maybe it is in the grand scheme of things for the better because it makes it a much more welcoming format to the likes of us but let's not pretend that we haven't lost something either yeah yeah i mean i miss a grand prix you know like i think once we we have get back to paper maybe towards the end of next year and there's some Grand Prix where we see kind of like how much modern has really changed in that time. I think it's it'll be interesting. But like a lot of the decks that are at the top of the metagame right now are n- very tweaked versions between last year and this year, right? Like if you think about Rakdos, uh, Shadow, like that's pretty different than where Shadow was at the yeah. end of last year. It's not quite Jund. It's not quite Grixis. You know, it's it's a different thing. And that's been caused by cards that have been printed this year you know obviously any deck with uro and omnath in it is fundamentally a shifted because of those cards within it i mean even if you think about like blue red prowess like my the deck that i really like there's two really key cards from sets that came out this year in that deck and so it's really um 
I think it has changed a lot and there's been a lot of churn at the top because of new cards, but also it hasn't gotten to scary consolidation, which I think is good. So it's, I feel like it's got a good balance. Yeah. I I guess my, my personal sort of final take on modern is that it remains solid, but I feel like more than ever, perhaps like modern does feel like that drag race format that we talked, you know, almost two years ago with like Ross Miriam. And maybe it always has been. And maybe like the fact that I was playing more historic and more pioneer this year made me look at modern through that lens where it's like, Hey, I'm trying like my deck executed what it was trying to do better than yours. And the matchup was a, was a more positive matchup and and that helped as well. I mean, I don't really want to rehash kind of like my personal mild frustrations with modern or, or somewhat major frustrations at times, but that's kind of where I'm at at least. Yeah. So just a, my last tech I think here is that I'm okay with that aspect of modern. And the more I think about it, the more I have been for the last couple of years. Okay. With that aspect of the format, you gotta go fast. You gotta, you, like we said last week, you know, it's that whole, you don't have a high margin for error. And sometimes there's not a lot of agency in certain games, but in other ones, you find this really interesting, complex and subtle way to adjust the outcome of your game. And I think that, that that's what the format is about. And um, it's about power, about like raw power and how you have these t- kind of two raw powerful things match up against each other and where the tiny edges that you get, like that's what it's about. And I think it, if if you are a deck tuner, I think modern is a is a format for you because I do think that you get a lot of your edge in your deck construction and your deck selection and your metagaming ability. I think that that's all something. Also, I think that metagaming is something that is easier to do in a paper environment, and I think it's harder to do in a digital one. Uh, but I think that that's something that modern is a format for people who enjoy that aspect of of the game as well. Stan, where are you at? Final, final answer. Just wish modern was on arena. I just wish that modern was more fun to play than magic online can yeah. be. If that makes sense, because I still love the format. I still love the decks that I like to play. It's just so hard going from MTGA to MTGO back and forth because it just makes MTGO look <laughs> yeah. so bad and feel so slow and so meticulous in unnecessary ways that I think. I can't wait for paper play just so that I can engage with modern more often because it's a more enjoyable way to play than MTGO is. Yeah. Like I shouldn't want to not have to, I shouldn't want to not play a great deck that is in my wheelhouse because I just don't want to play it on a, 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 a software that doesn't support what the deck does like Heliod combo or something. You know what I mean? I'm telling you, you just hit safe targets, yield all. That's not what it does though. It doesn't work. Right. Click. All right. Let's talk about, pioneer though like we talked we talked recently a good amount about pioneer um as recently as episode 97 so i don't think we should beat this particular horse too much more so frequently whenever we bring a pioneer people just turn off the episode but this <laughs> isn't this isn't a pioneer episode. just hang out while we get through the section i, I think the I mean the safest thing to say is that pioneer took a really big hit this year like in February, we were hyped. Like the GPs were getting going. SCG had Pioneer as like their third format for their popular team trio opens. It was replacing Legacy. Uh, the dramatic impact of like the Theros Beyond Death combo decks wasn't fully realized. Like people were into this format, and I certainly was for sure. 
But like we've you know talked a lot about uh, the lack of paper play, lack of arena support, Watsy not acknowledging that the combo decks were a legitimate problem for a lot of players' engagement. Uh, new cards. You talked about this, Dan. New cards were typically so powerful that like pioneer decks didn't really feel significantly different from some of the best standard strategies. Like all of these things made pioneer feel like a why should I bother playing this kind of format. Yeah, you bringing up the whole impact of those combo decks, that combo meta that lasted for, I want to say, at least three months. Yeah, it felt like a fight with felt, the game designer. It felt like two years. I know, and and this is all conjecture, but I do wonder how much of that contributed to the format's damage. In the, where if they had been more active in, in maintaining a certain metagame and looking beyond just the win rate numbers and actually looking at the fact that tournaments weren't firing and that to change the player capacities to get things to happen every week yeah. like that, that 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 wasn't a red flag sooner i wonder if maybe the pioneer format could have had a little bit of a longer life this year but as we'll get to it had an uphill battle as soon as we lost paper play just because of the presence of arena and a much more popular and perhaps equally engaging format yeah and i think that that conflict between historic and pioneer was inevitable really and it just got borne out in a way that in my mind pioneer didn't really have a chance because of the way that the world happened more than anything else yeah the last time i felt this way was 10 15 years ago when we had hd dvd and blu-ray simultaneously and <laughs> and i had to decide which format i need to convert all of my dvds to yeah. and i think we by investing in pioneer so early kind of invested in the hd dvds of 2020 it always happens. You know, my family was a beta household before they were VHS. Beta was better quality, but nobody technically did better, it. Yes. Yeah. You know how that is. You know how technically better works out when it's not accessible. And that, I mean, that's kind of what we're looking at, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Accessibility. I know that everybody's saying like they think Pioneer is going to get revitalized when it comes becomes available on Arena, but I, I don't think it's going to happen, y'all. Like bottom line, I, I will. I would be short on Pioneer right now. Yeah. Well, what... I mean, Stan, Dave, what do you think that it's going to take for Pioneer to have like a little bit of a comeback in 2021, if anything? It's going to need paper play plus. I think they're going to have to do something very, inject something very, very exciting into the digital format first, just to manufacture hype and then try to time that with the return of paper play. Because it was a great paper format, right? It was their non-rotating format that you could afford. Yeah, I mean, I, I really feel like it's more likely to be the other way than anything else. I feel like Pioneer will get going right off into the sunset and Historic will somehow get converted into paper. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I mean, there's a lot of stuff to think about there. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just don't think there's enough differentiating the two formats anymore. And I feel like Historic has better balance almost than Pioneer ever had, even though there's a lot of a, like degenerate decks in Historic. So in general, I, I do agree with you. I wonder whether we're going to run into an issue where there's card scarcity in paper historic. Oh, yeah. And I think what's going to happen is not, I don't think this is what's going to happen, but one possible path I could see, and this <laughs> is wild speculation, is like, we just print a historic master's set that's like 
here's Muxus again, and here's all these cards. And and I, I don't think that this was a plan on their part. I just think that if they want to try to make this right, they should heavily consider bringing Historic into paper. And the way to fix it is to add this adjunct set onto Historic that covers the cards that are legal in Historic that are not legal in Modern. This is the big problem with that. And we can talk about that more in a little bit. We can talk about it now and transition to Historic. But in my mind, there's way more chance of this happening than Pioneer ending up on Arena. That's just kind of where I'm at. Maybe we should talk about the historic stuff a little bit later, but go ahead. Well, so you talk about historic masters and paper. I would love that to happen. And I think that will help turn it into a paper format once we have paper play. But we know the product lifecycle for Wizards. For historic masters to come out, they would have had to start working on it a year or two ago. So unless they can somehow expedite the supply chain, this isn't something that we can have can that we can expect in 21, like 22 at best. I think you're probably right about that. Yeah. Hastily printed Ulamogs. (laughs) (laughs) What's this magic with a K? This doesn't seem right. Shane, Shane, what do you think? I mean, just briefly repeat myself from ep 97 i just don't think pioneer is a lot of draw for most players right now like historic just captures much of the idea of pioneer and it's available on arena has digital tournament support constantly changing due to like the remasters anthologies and then the new sets so it's like growing forward and backward which is cool like what more would you want out of a non-rotating format right now besides besides like the power level lightning bolt yeah, the power level and and certain cards and the strategies that are supported by those cards of modern, but you also you have modern. You know what I mean? So like you you have you have modern uh, on spell table. You have modern on Magic Online. You can use your your Mana Traders account uh, coupon code that I've done all one word. In uh, Solar, yeah. I just think that I just think that the only way Pioneer really gets revitalized is by making it a tournament format with high stakes, or and or making it available on Arena. And neither of those things seem super likely in 2021 to me. Here's the only thing I have to say about those two ideas, Shane. I think that modern, and maybe it's just because modern was so established already and legacy, honestly, both stand against the idea of needing to be a tournament format with high stakes driven by wizards to draw interest. So I think that what we're talking about here realistically is does pioneer get onto arena? And I think that that's the bottom line for whether the format survives or not. Because we, we saw what, and we'll talk about this in a second, is like we saw what happened with Historic. Is Historic is on Arena and that drove interest, right? Like yeah. it is a new format that people are into. Um, and there's data behind that. Like I, I saw like the number of games played that Untapped has tracked, like, you know, this year versus last year, or like even this half of year. And it's significantly higher, right? Like people are playing Historic. And that is... Not necessarily just because the historic format is novel, it's because it's a it's an easy and convenient and fun way to play that format, right? So absolutely. I don't know. So let's talk about historic on its own because it certainly has its own problems as much as we've enjoyed playing it over the last couple of months, right? But I think we've kind of got to a spot where we're good with like this is what Pioneer needs to do. I think historic is is weird. Like I don't feel super confident talking about the actual meta and like construction of the the format the way that exists right now because it feels kind of haphazard but i i know that like i've been enjoying playing on arena and enjoying playing it so it's it's a weird contradiction where part of it is like maybe i just enjoy the fact that there's a good amount of unknowns to me when i'm playing it still yeah but yeah i mean historic is 
whether or not like this format could stand up to the rigors of constant tournaments or like let's say let's say historic was like being put through the ringer of scg like every third weekend or something like that yeah. right? i mean like, lawson just mentioned this in the chat so i definitely yeah. think that it's a good good point um i do think that historic needs more decks in the pool that's the main a big thing i don't know how we get there but i do think there needs to be more decks in the pool well we know how to get there keep growing in the directions that it's growing like i think they're working toward that goal in theory yeah depending a little bit on what future card design looks like too the most important thing about historic to me is that it's fun and i've played hundreds of matches of historic over the past like five six weeks and i haven't played that much magic in a long time and like you said stan it's like it's a fun and easy way to play magic when you have time to do it in like a way that you want to and I think that that's a really important thing right now. Yeah. For me, at least. Absolutely. I mean, most of my problems with Historic are around Arena itself. They're not really problems with the format other than potentially banning some cards or even suspending cards that just need some time on the bench before they can come back into a slightly powered up format like sure uro right like i mean we look at it and we go like maybe uro should go but they do have these interesting thing experiments that they do like the historic shakeup where they're like we're just going to ban all these cards and see what happens to the meta without it they let us do the play testing now i wish that we had a chance to see what the results of that event were like i'm not sure what they were um off the top of my head but um we'll never I, I, know I, you know, maybe we will when they make some suspensions, right? <laughs> Tough to say. Yeah, that's a good point. But yeah, I'm excited for more new cards to get into the meta and make new decks. What I really want on one hand, though, is I want the the arena economy to like make a little more sense than it does somehow. Like, I can we buy some wild cards? Is there something else that we can do? Like, I don't even know if I care how much I have to pay for them. Like, uh, can we figure that out wizards is that fair is that going to destroy the money making machine for you like is there some tweaks that can happen to make that make more sense i don't know i mean what do you think what do you guys think about like the economy in general now that we've been a part of it for a little bit i have significant concerns about the economy especially as the format grows because we saw what it was like to sort of buy in to the format now and as the format gets larger it will probably take a little bit more money every time and as we talked about, the majority of what you're buying is essentially wild cards just through the the mechanics of opening packs. But opening packs, you still can pick sets that give you more playables than others where you can maybe get those shock lands you want or you maybe you can get those triumphs that you want or, you know, uh, powered up mythics and rares and stuff like that. But you won't be able to spread yourself as thin and still get those cards. So I think it might just sort of have a scope creep that is not comfortable for a lot of people. And so maybe it it turns into a uh, buy this anthology type pack of just card, like, like a, a historic masters in digital form, where it's like, you know, these cards have been purchasable for three years, so you can just get them on sale in this anthology pack. And, and people who already have had them, you've been able to enjoy them for three years, so no skin off your back, we hope, type thing. And you're more people playing is better than not, but people will find a way to complain about that anyway. Uh, I don't know. I think there there is a strain on the economy end of things that I don't love, and I don't have a good solution, and I don't think Watsy really cares about the solution as long as they are making a good amount of money. 
Yeah. And bottom line, I hope they are making a good amount of money because otherwise they're going to stop putting money into the platform. So like if you, you know, I enjoy playing magic on it. They have to make money off of it. Like it's not the best uh, argument, especially for some of these like loot box kind of practices that people are really sensitive to these days. But um, it's worth keeping in mind that the, there is a bottom line attached to it to keep it going, that they need that. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of like anti Watsi capitalism type thing. But I do think that Watsi, we have seen Watsi's practices be push as hard as we can push and then when it breaks repair that bridge as well as we can and that's not a great pattern yeah 100 percent true there what's weird about the arena economy that i think may never be fixable but may also just be the fact that i'm used to an alternative is that unlike magic online arena is a one-way street and it's a total black box and once you put in money into arena you're never ever getting that back and perhaps yeah. Perhaps in, in that way, MTGO is a unicorn. You just got to cash opens, then you get the money back, huh. you know? Oh. No problem. That's you how, know what I mean? So, that's the so way out. I, I just wonder if my expectations are unreasonable because MTGO was such a unique platform in the first place. Yeah, I mean, people forget, or maybe it's not brought up enough, but MTGO was the first digital collectible card game platform, and it was out well before many other platforms. And they had a lot of other stuff that they had to think about when they developed it and decided how they were implemented, mostly that they didn't want to freak out their uh, LGS customers about like what's going to happen to our economy. So that's part of the reason that Magic Online was created to reflect the paper economy so much. And also that you were able to cash it out for cards. I mean, there was more of a trend at that point in time to, to have like digital objects be able to be turned into cash more easily. Like Bitcoin? Well, I was thinking about like EverQuest and and things like that, you know, like selling stocked up characters in World of War World of Warcraft and that kind of thing. So it was it was it was a different time. You know, you used to be able to very easily, not very easily, you used to be able to more frequently convert digital magic online cards into paper cards. And that's much harder to do these days. So, I mean, look, I think we all have pains around the economy. Hopefully it continues to get a little bit more value based for the players. We just shade it, keep shading it that way as much as we can to where it's a good balance for everybody. But um, hopefully that gets better. Last thing I, I have for historic anyway, is that I really, I want a different way to play that feels exciting other than the latter and the, events like the on-demand events right now are not it like yeah traditional event play or whatever like that stuff is just not as compelling as the latter to me right now for some reason and i i'd like to figure out why they don't feel as good compared to leaks so i want to dig into this a little bit because i agree with you that there is kind of this feels issue but the events are one of your best ways to generate profit in gold while also growing your collection of digital cards. So you can go infinite by playing events, but the stakes feel lower, even though I don't think they are. I think the stakes are in a way higher because you can generate so much more, you know, virtual capital. So do you think it's just a matter of it would be more fun if they started publishing event results some way? Do you think it's because you're not necessarily always playing the same amount of matches, but you're kind of just like playing X until you go X2 or X3 and then you're automatically eliminated? What do you think they can do to make it more compelling for you? Because right now it's one of the best ways to engage with this economy that they've created for us. I think you make a great point. I think it's probably a lot around the promotion and construction of it. I love the idea of counting people's like seven twos 
you know, and like having some kind of, maybe they don't convert to anything even. Maybe there's just a leaderboard that's attached to that that's separate from the ladder that's just like event masters. You know, maybe there's a place to go look at um, seven to, I mean, they do publish the decks from these, I think, somehow, like on, you know, here and there when they feel like it. I, a more regular cadence of reporting on these. I wish that they had more frequent, like higher stakes ones, kind of akin to what magic, you know, like the prelims on yeah. on magic online and things like that where it's like hey come and play friday nights uh and do like 12 hours of of a league that's not as high stakes as one of the opens but is higher stake than one of the one of the events that they have just because it's a lot more fun and i think you get people to kind of engage in a way a little bit more right now all of the social media content you see around arena is around what people's ranks are on the ladder unless there's an open then they're posting their open results you know yeah i I agree with what you all are saying. And I think that it's, it's wild to me that arena is letting a a perfectly awesome, uh, platform, by the way, like MTG melee drink their milkshake. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like seepage, like they, they have the platform. Why are people playing tournaments off the platform? You know what I mean? Like this, this is the kind of thing that should be built in and they take the rake. You mean it's 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 madness that they're not doing this for a number of reasons, and and the fact that they only are sort of having like these occasional uh, arena uh, event opens that are quite costly and have like this sort of strange rebuy concept, like just have a quality Swiss tournament support, like have have people able to sign up with a sign up code and have like a personal uh, FNM like we do. You know, why why let other software engineers and web engineers develop these kind of things and make it harder and harder for them to get that interest back on their own platform when it's like, well, this isn't better than MTG Melee. Why would I bother even using your platform? And why would I bother paying your rake um, if I can do this for free elsewhere? The main thing that they can do is offer prize support off that rake, right? Right. And have make it feel like there's some good stakes and there's some good payout and not even just in gems where it's like sort of captive, captive funds, but like, like the opens where you can make legitimate actual cash and it doesn't need to be 2000. It doesn't need to be 4,000. It could be like 200 and people will be amped. Right. And so it's just a scale thing where I think that they don't right now, I feel like they're sort of focusing on these high income modest payout of the arena opens. And I think it could be a little bit flatter where it's like payouts are modest and the payouts are flatter and the entry level is cheaper and it's a Swiss. So you can't rebuy. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot there. And maybe the, the, maybe the, the bean counters think it's just not worth it. And that's fair. You know, I think would make these events really exciting or maybe find a way to create an event structure. That's a step above events. If you go undefeated or you hit whatever the max is, 7 to 7x, what have you, you actually get wild cards. Rather than like three random cards, one or two of them are rares, you just get one rare wild or one mythic wild, etc. Yeah, and- I mean, there's there's a lot to be said with, in terms of generosity of collection building. And certainly it but might be something I'm, that I'm not just talking tweaked. about generosity, though. I'm actually talking about price support being commiserate with the time that you're putting into a platform. That's fair too. Or, that's or, fair. or how much you're paying to even participate in an event within the platform. So that's kind of like, it's nice to talk a little bit about arena as combined with historic as well. Like let's, let's tie a bow on this historic stuff. And as we come to the close of the first hour, what, 
what are some things that you maybe don't want out of historic next year or are concerned that could get make make historic less enjoyable? Number one for me is long term for health of the format is stop putting cards in historic that are not modern legal. Please <laughs> like figure this out so that we can consider doing this in paper because I just think it's where we're going. I think it's where the format probably should go and we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, that's weird. Like I people talked about Muxus in Legacy so much, like as soon as it came out, I, I really thought Muxus had been printed before and was like already in Legacy. I didn't know it was a brand new card. Like that's how clueless I am about Legacy play. But yeah, we have these captive cards that are only in Jumpstart and right now, like basically only in Arena uh, and of the Allosaurus Rider of Muxus. There's some other cards that don't see a lot of constructed play for our formats. But yeah, like these are some issues like this is a it's not a great trend. Yeah, I mean, the flip side is to make Jumpstart legal and modern, which I am not a fan of either. Nah. So just to be clear, not really a fan of that. <laughs> Stan imagining what Allosaurus would be like in Modern Elves. Seems not bad. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but when they mentioned, when they said this whole thing, originally that Jumpstart was going to be in Historic, I was like, this is going to be a problem for a while. And now it's a real problem, I think, because people have affinity for the format, and I think it's going to go from there. But besides Muxus... You know, like Allosaurus Shepherd did not make Historic Elves some powerhouse historic deck either. Like it's it's good, no. not great. Maybe it's fine, not good. Yeah. Yeah. Muxus, I think, is the big one. Allosaurus Shepherd, that creates problems for legacy elves. Right. In terms of like availability and cost, blah blah blah. I, I my point is, so what if they made historic modern legal? Like Muxus is just one card, and I don't know if your six drop is the thing that you need to worry about in modern goblins or like a six drop is the thing you need to worry about in, in modern at all. No, we know it's like a ramp, it's a ramp target too. So I don't know. I think it it beats up on any fair deck and there's still people playing some fair decks in the format. So it's just another path that they could go in, but I think there, there needs to be a reckoning here that helps that. And so part of stopping that flow would be to stop putting cards from scourge in historic (laughs) through historic anthologies. Like why is gem palm polluter in historic? Why is enchantress's presence in historic? These are not like really constructed playable cards. Yeah. It's just the kind of nonsense that makes it way too hard for people to like mentally track what's going on. And it's why we don't have things like eroded cards besides the eroded companion uh, rule. And it's it's part of the reason that I think a lot of things are the way they are is because magic is a paper game. And when you can look at set symbols and you can look at just the card frame and a lot of a lot of times for things like modern, I think it is challenging for for you to say or for Watsi to say hey uh, historic's not a paper format uh and gatherer still even tell you what's legal and historic right you know what i mean so yeah and scryfall's better at telling you so just go use scryfall instead of gatherer you yeah, know it's just it's not it's not something that i think is a great trend and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of investment in moving towards historic as a paper format and i'm kind of afraid if it moves that way but yeah i i'm I agree with you, Dave, that I think like sort of tighten up the goal of historic maybe, or be more clear about what the goal is. And like, if it's to be fun, then maybe make it fun in in ways that are easier to translate to people's collections paper-wise, if if we're going towards that. I don't know. I don't know if this is a historic specific problem, though it relates. I'm 
nervous about new cards from future sets. And, yeah. you know, the way that Pioneer turned into a 2020 format, not just in, I mean, it came out in 2019, but it became all about 2020 cards in a lot of ways. I worry that the same fate could befall Historic if each year's power level continues to eclipse the previous year. And yeah. I, I I get a little bit of peace of mind from the fact that Pioneer or Historic is growing backwards and forward but it would have to go beyond Return to Ravnica to escape that problem, apparently, because that's how far Pioneer goes, and, you know, we know where Pioneer is at. Yeah, I mean, think about the the actual impact of Kaladesh Remastered. It's not that significant. Like, there's, I think people people were really worried about uh, Mono Red and, you know, some other strategies that would be supported by Kaladesh cards. And I think Kaladesh has kind of just been another set that's had some some nice playables, but it hasn't blown things wide open. And I and, and Kaladesh is considered one of the most powerful sets of recent memory. Paradox Engine. Yeah, I was going to say, Paradox Engine is... Got a big target on it right now. I also think that the Mardu like vehicles deck is pretty legit, you know, and so there's Toolcraft Exemplar, and I, I think there's plenty of cards out of it that are okay, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, I guess. I guess well, I mean, you don't need to pick apart my comment. My real comment <laughs> is that the old, that new new sets have been more powerful than old sets by significant margins. Yeah, I mean, everybody likes to go. I hate fire design. I hate fire design. It's like. I don't even know what era we're in right now, but you know, stop making your mold drifters bane slayers. Is basically the story, right? Yeah. Like, stop, stop having bane drifters. <laughs> I play that card. All right, guys, that was a fun little reflection on the last year of magic. We do want to reflect on the last year of diving down into things, but I'd love to take a quick break. Maybe we can grab a glass of water, cool our jets a little bit because I think we're a little steamed. And when we come back, cooled and collected. We can talk about some of our favorite episodes of the year, our favorite and least favorite decks, cards, what have you. So stay with us and we'll be right back. And we're back. All right. I got a fresh can of Lime LaCroix. I also went to the bathroom briefly. Oh, great. Refresh now. Good. So... So we had a fun year making a podcast together, right, guys? I mean, essential, I think, in some ways. So let's start with a little bit of positives. Do you yeah. have a memory for your favorite episodes of the year to, to make or even just look back on and re-listen? I want to start because this is one of the areas where I can be, I can be fairly positive, right? So uh, I'm going to go sort of chronological. I think one of my favorite episodes of my memory was uh, Chonky Red, the All Lord He Coming featuring uh, Todd. I had a lot of fun in this episode. I think Todd was a fun guest. I think Todd was, Todd was a really good guest in that he, you know, he has broadcasting experience, right? So it's like he was a great person to have on as a guest with us because he just drop right in, hang out. And it's also during the period when Pioneer was still a thing. Like we were, you know, we were like, hey, this is a deck that people care about. This is someone who's playing this, getting a lot of eyes on their stream. We can, you know, we can get eyes on them. It was something that was a time capsule in a way of what magic was in early 2020. I have others, but I want I want a little round table. Sure. Um, I mean, on my list is also a guest spot that this is once we started doing guest spots as bonus episodes, 
Bonus nine, A Philosophy of Design, featuring Patrick Sullivan. Maybe my relationship with that episode is unique because I wasn't on it and I got to enjoy it entirely as a fan, but hearing Shane and Patrick Sullivan talk about game design and how it relates to Magic the Gathering and kind of having someone with this wealth of experience, basically, you know, part of the old guard of Magic as a competitive player and then also being such a presence today as a as a Magic thinker and commentator, I felt like every five minutes was this new level up for me and how I thought about the game, both playing it and from a high level um, that's kind of like an episode that I would recommend to people they should listen to if they want to get a sense of like, what are some of the dive downs best episodes ever? Uh, yeah, I, I think Patrick was an amazing guest, like a, a great person to interview because I think, I think Patrick Sullivan, um, is one of the best thinkers in magic. I think, I think Patrick Sullivan is an amazing thinker about the game. I think he has some of the best takes in in magic and about a lot of stuff uh in general and i was really happy to talk to him and and grateful for him being on so thanks for thinking of that stan no thank you shane for making it (laughs) well i guess i'll stick with the guest spot uh category here with my favorite one of my favorite episodes was the seventh bonus episode from april I think with uh, where we did Mono Red Prowess with Ryan Overturf, Stan and I were on that episode together. I just thought it was a great episode to just be a part of. You know, I thought uh, I really learned a lot from Ryan and the way that he thought about Prowess. And it made me rethink the way that I was playing the deck and the potential that that deck could have post the Phoenix era. And I think it just helped me get better at playing decks like that uh, a lot of ways. And so I thought Ryan did a great job and we had a good time on there and um, I, that's definitely one that I've gone back to and listened before just to like kind of tune up my thinking about that specific uh, that specific deck a couple of times. Yeah, I, I said I was going to do chronological, but I'll just continue the the bonus snowball accumulating white, white, white fluffy stuff on the outside. Bonus 10, songs about cards with MTG Remy. Like I thought it was such a fun episode. Like Stan, you and Remy, I think had great rapport. Uh, Remy is just a really clever and like nice seeming dude. Uh, I think his songs are really clever. I think he's a nice part of the community and, and I enjoy listening every time he's got a new, new song drop. So I thought that was a great episode and a great interview. Thanks. Remy is a true rare one of a kind person. I've since emailed him just random questions out of the blue, just about YouTube and stuff. And he always just answers my questions and says, hey, Stan, hope you're doing well. How are things? How's the weather? Here's the answer to your question, but also <laughs> let me know how you're doing. And it's and it's nice to encounter people that are just so genuine and friendly and loving. And I, I love Remy. Wow. What a statement. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I think we were really lucky that uh, that he was willing to take the time because he's such a positive force in the Magic community and, and being able to share that with as many people as possible I think is important, especially this year. You know, not to butter our guests' bread too much, but one of the other episodes in my list of favorites from this year is the Modern Blue Moon bonus six with the pen sword, Jacob Kamiski. That was a fun one for me because I got to talk to a deck master about one of my all-time favorite decks to play in modern period and getting to talk to someone at a higher level and like go specific about cards and how they're how they function relative to the format and and how someone makes very minute decisions about one card over the other and how they rank 
counter spells and what feels like a sea of counter spells in modern was really interesting for me that in a way that I never really get to do with other people at that level. And I think we get to do that a bit when Aspiring Spike is on every once in a while. And it was really cool to do that about a deck that I was passionate about for so long. So that that one is going to stick with me for a long time. And, you know, it's too bad that Modern Blue Moon isn't quite as popular as it was. It's still out there. T-Moose kind of carrying the torch these days, but I loved making that episode and it's kind of a, a highlight in my own little repertoire. Yeah, I'll just say really quickly, you know, these bonus episodes, when we do manage to get them out, the ones that we have guests on, I think are, are really good. And one thing that's interesting is that they have lower downloads and listenership than the mainline episodes. So I would say if you're someone who skips those, you should go back and check them out. Like, especially the ones that we pointed out, just because I think that they're they're really good looks at kind of other magic minds than than ours. And certainly you can encounter those people in other places. But, I, you know, I think that we're decent interviewers. And so I think that, you know, it's kind of a fun combination in, in some of these cases. Like, you know, I've never heard an uh, an interview in a magic sense quite like the interview that Shane gave to Patrick, you know? And so I think that that's a thread that runs through some of the interviews. So I think if you do skip those or have skipped them, I, I you know, go back and pick one that you're interested in and give a listen. Yeah. The Pat Sullivan one is, is evergreen. I think that one will be relevant for years. Yeah. When Shane is long dead. <laughs> <laughs> one more episode you'd like, Dave, and then we can move on. All right. So one of my favorites uh, was we did it for Science Volume 1, oh, the Titanic yeah. par- power of Uro and Omnath, because I love the concept of hate playing decks. I just thought mm-hmm. that it was fun to see us all squirm a little bit and try to figure out, like, do we like this? Do we not like this? Are we bad people because we like this stuff that is clearly <laughs> making the game a little bit worse every time someone plays it? But I thought that was a fun episode. And I, I also think it's good for us to push ourselves to play decks that we don't normally have preferences for because the three of us do have really kind of specific tendencies. And those aren't those don't always align with what's super popular. And so... I think it's something that we should keep in mind is like we have to, you know, part of last week when I suggested that Shane try some primeval Titan is like, we got to get in there. Got to have some Titan chops on this, on this podcast. Yep. Guess uh, expand those boundaries. All right. We talked about our favorite episodes. Let's talk about kind of a specific category of episode. I think one of the ones that we have always liked doing the most and maybe kind of put us on the map early. And those are our deck dives. Stan. Why don't you go first? So this one might be a little surprising, but the one that I think is nearest and dearest to my heart for 2020 was episode 88, Gift Storm, A Modern Ritual. And perhaps it's for a couple of reasons. One, it was my first time revisiting my very first deck in Modern. So I've changed a lot as a player since Modern Masters 2017 came out, which is when I got into the format and started with, with Storm. So I got to capitalize on all of my learning in a way that I don't get to do with our other deck dives because most other ones, it's pretty clear slate for all of us. But Gift Storm was a deck that I got to relearn how to ride the bike, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of cool in and of itself. But it also motivated me to just rebuy the deck in paper because once upon a time I sold off all of my gifts ungiven and passed in flames. And then when it was time to actually do this episode, we were doing it in the summer. It was still warm out. And every once in a while, I would play Paper Magic in my backyard with some of my friends. And the scheduling lined up in such a way that I got to work on this episode while playing in my backyard with my buddy Martin. And 
it was a good reason to spend, I think, like 25 bucks to just rebuy the pieces I needed for Gift Storm. And now I have Gift Storm laying around. It doesn't compete with any other decks. And it makes me happy that, you know, I got to revisit that deck, kind of come face to face with the expertise that I've developed over the last few years and, and kind of not shy away from where I came from. So you use like excuses to buy decks, right? That's a part of it. Yes. <laughs> I don't think he likes excuses to buy decks as much as you do, Shane. <laughs> but I, that's one thing about 2020 is definitely different is I've spent thousands less on magic, the gathering cards this year. Holy moly. But Dave, you, I think I spent about the same actually weirdly. Wow. In some ways. What are your favorite, your favorite deck dives, Dave? Okay. I have two. And they were actually episodes that were right next to each other. The first one was episode 84, which is the many moods of Mystic Sanctuary. Um, well, you're calling that a deck dive, huh? I mean, it's a dive. It's a dive. We call them card dives, right? Yeah. Like we, you know, yeah, we've I'm not done, gonna argue. Yeah, we've done a couple of these in the past. We did one that was all on Chalice of the Void. We did another one that was all about surgical, surgical extraction, which is, I think was a really interesting one. And I felt like Mystic Sanctuary was another card that kind of deserved the same treatment that we had given those. And I think those things are rare. You know, we we only did, I think this is the only one that we did this year that was kind of in that vein, if I remember right. And I think that, you know, it's really interesting to be able to talk for 50 minutes about the intricacies of playing and building decks around a single card, a card that many people think is a problem in modern. And I'm somewhat inclined to agree, even though I think oh, it's yeah. a card that's very good and very powerful um, and very much goes into decks that I'd like to play. Uh, but I just think that it, you know, it's great to give us time to ponder how a subtle little effect can spark a huge change in a format. And so I think, that was a really cool one to do. The second one is that, of course, uh, the episode right after that, episode 85, we got to talk about all of the different flavors of prowess decks, three different prowess decks in that episode. And yeah, we got to talk about the weird builds of my favorite decks at the moment and what's continued to be my favorites. <laughs> and like, I just thought that was another one that was kind of a long time coming from us and was glad that we did it and did it in a way where we just didn't talk about a single build across the whole thing. We talked about multiples. Yeah. Um, I had a hard time with this question this year. Like if anyone, if anyone couldn't tell, we're repeating most of the questions from last year, just kind of like the, repeating the format. I think it's saying a lot that, that people would have any idea what the format was from last year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of podcast production and perhaps like our evolution as, as podcasters, I'm curious if you all agree here, but I, I feel like we didn't lean as hard on doing deck dives this year. Like if I, if I counted correctly, we did about 10 true sort of deck dives and we did 16 last year. That's a pretty significant difference, right? I think part of that reason is like, we're, we weren't really just sort of getting off the ground. Like we were hitting all the big players in modern early on in our run. But I also think we've been more creative in our episode concepts and our episode topics. We've also had 2020 to navigate, which is sometimes I think left us more interested in like the meta aspects of the game rather than focusing on just particular decks that are doing well or seem interesting. But I also think that magic maybe thankfully like wasn't in a place where we were given too many like new crazy decks that we felt like we had to cover. Like, you know, when we see something like mono white taxes coming back or oops, all spells appearing or Winota appearing or Jeskai Luka or like Orzov Auras earlier in the year for pioneer, you know, we, we did all that kind of stuff. 
And we even had a good reason to revisit, revisit Modern Dredge, and that was a fun revisit, our first sort of repeat deck dive. But like, you know, I, I think a sort of, a, yeah, just meta commentary on like the concept of deck dives. Like, I don't really know what my favorite one of the year is, and I'm glad that we still have lots of opportunity to do them. Um, but I think that uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that next year, and maybe with tur- if tournaments make a comeback towards the end of the year or something like that, we're like, hey, there's new breakouts or new sets promote new deck building or historic becomes a more dynamic and, and broader format. And we definitely have some historic decks to dive into um, as we keep navigating that format. So yeah, we haven't even really done a, a true, true no. deck dive in. I, I will say one thing I would say is that I think that we've exercised maybe a little bit more restraint with the number of times that we give an entire hour to a yeah. deck because i think we've done a few more compilation style yeah sure like we, we we get to the meat a little bit more quickly yeah and i think you know there are decks that warrant the like really long discussion but i also think that we covered more ground this year by like you know i think about the couple of episodes we did about historic that were pretty that were yeah, each we had three, three deck, deck dives. dives yeah and and even our sleeve believe heaves are a little kind of like deck divey now so i think we figured out a way to like make them shorter which is nice to have as, as a way to flex into as as well yeah because remember we used to really emphasize like everybody played the deck which is yes. great lots of times but occasionally it's nice to each pick a deck and cover it and share those those findings with the rest of the crew instead of um you know, waiting to go through three weeks of one episode on Rakdosak, one episode on Sultai. Not that we shouldn't get back to some of those decks at some point next year, but something to think about. So Stan, yeah, what was your favorite level up episodes that we did? If we may be so bold as to call them level up episodes, because it implies that people level up after listening to them. Well, I think we did. Uh, yeah, clearly the, the host level up. So this one was easy for me because I think about this episode all the time and I kind of look back on it finally because we created a framework that we get to reference over and mm-hmm. over and, and cite in episodes to this day. And that was number 73, How Do I Know If I'm Winning, which was a Patreon requested episode from Cool Jake. And yeah, thanks again, Jacob, for your ongoing generosity. It's ridiculous. For those who don't recall or maybe didn't listen, this is the episode where we deconstructed games of magic into different ways of measuring advantages, whether it's card advantage or life advantage or speed advantage. I'm I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it was this concept of an advantage and how it manifests in different forms of magic play. And I think it was maybe the smartest that we've ever been about magic the game as opposed to an individual card or deck yeah i love this episode too it's on my list of just favorite episodes of the year but putting in level up category certainly makes sense just like how do i know if i'm winning like how do decks create and press advantage how do you try to steal that back with you know your particular deck i think it's just it's a fundamental way of thinking about the game and i'm glad that we were asked to look at the game in that fashion because like you said it's like i think about it all the time i reference it all the time like i'm always talking about this episode um, when we're recording and i'm like i hope people aren't sick of me talking about it but i think it's one of one of our our best pieces of of level up content and i'm i'm proud of it for sure yeah and i think this one is not to continue to talk about how awesome this podcast was but <laughs> i think there's two things to note with it for us going forward and i guess for anyone thinking about making media like this and that is you know we wouldn't have i don't think we would have done an episode with that much scope if someone hadn't asked us to do it 
you know, so I would, you know, appreciate the encouragement from Jake and, and definitely who kind of thought he would like to hear our take on this kind of really complex problem. And the other thing I would say is, I think it was one where we really all worked together really well on it to, to put together a final outcome, you know, so it was good creative collaboration between all three of us. Maybe I'm being unnecessarily self-conscious, but part of me worries that we almost peaked with that episode and, <laughs> and we'll never, you know... You don't have to exceed every previous episode you did when trying to make new content. I, I think that's an unnecessarily burdensome goal. But if you tried to meet a certain level, I think that's a, a reasonable goal. And I think it's going to be hard to even meet the quality of analysis that we did in that show. Well, you know that we are about to owe Cool Jake another bonus episode. <laughs> so we'll just get right back on that. He'll challenge us again. Yeah, let's see what he says. I'll say Stan. Um I do think that those episodes are not for everybody. Sure. And so while some people might have thought that we really peaked or some podcast <laughs> hosts might have thought that, I'm glad we don't try to do those every month or every three months even because, you know, sometimes people want to tune in for meta analysis and that's kind of like it. They want the pivot tables and that's another thing they bring. So it's it's maybe the best example of a certain type of thing that we can do occasionally. Um but man, I mean, it's tough to like walk up to the media of like magic production, content production, and be like, we're going to do a big picture strategic episode that like LSV probably should be doing and not yeah. us, you know? And so a lot, we were thinking about that a lot when we were making it, trying to make it authentic coming from us, you know? And so I think that was a big thing that helped it. And also it's a lot, it's a lot of work for us. I feel like someone like Pat Chapin or like, you know, Jerry Thompson, like they can, I mean, not to, not to say they, they probably don't put tons of prep in their episodes, but I feel like they could do it off the cuff while we have to spend a lot of hours writing that, <laughs> thinking yeah. about it, making sure it's going to make sense. All right. We talked about, we talked about level up episodes. All right. What do you think is your, your best individual level up moment or level up sort of experience as players this year? And, uh, Dave, I think that you got a lot going on lately, and I want to hear what you think your, your level up moments have been. Oh, we're going to start with me. Yeah. I mean, weirdly, I think it's been like the last six weeks of Magic play for me. I, I'm just on like a crazy run right now, and I don't know if it's like my life feels a little more settled, and so when I play, I'm actually focusing a little bit more or, or, or what, but, you know, I have... You know, I qualified for Arena Open Day 2. I qualified for Mana Traders Day 2. I finished that qualification today. I hit Mythic today on Arena for the first time in the in, a, in Constructed. Man, this guy. Um, my win rate on Arena is 75% on the ladder. And, Bonk, that's bonkers. And, and it's over a medium, Sam. I'm, it's over two months for me, which yeah. is about 80 games, basically, 80 matches. My... My win rate with blue white auras is like 83%. And today I went uh, 13 and two through plat to mythic with, with uh, <laughs> blue white auras. And this is just best of one, correct? No, no, I oh, only you're... play best of three now. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to feel like I'm, you know, playing well without access to paper play in, and it's kind of mystifying by anything else because I've definitely had some rough times over the last couple of years. But like, I feel like these decks are just kind of like talking to me or like, like this is the type of deck that I get how to play and um, it's kind of working, you know? And so that's nice. And so for this year, that's kind of the best memory that I have of actual playing magic. 
Yeah, that's incredible, Dave. Like your stats are yeah, pretty mind blowing, pretty awesome. Um, I feel like you are uh, where I was feeling earlier in the year. Like um, I didn't have many eighty percent win rate by any means, but uh, you know, earlier in the year, like my my stats were were good. Like I was playing a lot of LGS, like Pioneer and, and Modern, and I was preparing for the the GP, and I did well at the GP, and making day two at GP Phoenix was you know, it was a really awesome feeling. Like it's you know, especially since my win in was versus a much better player than myself, and it was like one of my favorite sort of mashups to navigate which was like red aggro versus Azorius control. And I feel like I, I played it correctly. Like I didn't just steamroll them. I, I played it correctly and I came out on the other side with the win and that felt really awesome and was definitely like a positive tilt. And that's either you know, kind of lame or pretty awesome that that was one of the more cool experiences of, of magic for me. But, you know, I can't think of anything that's like a specific moment where I got better at magic. Like my... But earlier this year, I was just sort of like I was playing well. Like I had, I had a good win percentage. I, you know, I was tracking my my stats back when they still had uh, Planeswalker point data on the website and stuff like that before they decommissioned that. And you know, but recently my like my arena data is like you know fifty the same fifty five percent ish player I felt like I've been for a long time. Like, and that's not even at mythic by any means. And so I think that you know I don't have a specific. Uh, I learned something new and that it made me a lot better of a magic player, but I feel like I'm, I'm staying consistent and I had sort of an awesome peak at the beginning of the year that unfortunately wasn't able to maintain playing pioneer all year uh, by any means. I'm Stan. I, I'm sort of with you in that. I, I don't know if I became a ma- better magic player this year per se. I think I got kind of a little bit better at picking up new decks quicker um and and that's maybe where i became a better magic player and the place where i think that really illustrates itself is my journey with ponza that you know started earlier in the year it started you know around march or april just as people were starting to realize how powerful clothis was in that deck and it was getting much more popular and becoming a, a real modern staple for a while and i latched onto it you know pretty early and i don't play a lot of mid-range decks and that's what ponza is but I felt powerful piloting it because it allowed me to exercise a lot of my format knowledge that I've picked up while playing modern over the last few years and kind of being able to assess what my opponents were on in the first couple turns. Ponce is the type of deck that really rewards that ability. Um, and I felt that reward in a lot of games. Likewise, understanding my role in a variety of matchups. I think when you're playing mid-range, knowing when to play more reactive versus playing more proactive and aggressive is something that can be really important. And Ponce is a deck that can do both. Like it can reactively kill creatures or blow up lands, or it can proactively cast dragons and elf berserkers. Yeah, I think you're experiencing, I think, one of the best reasons to play a format a lot. And that is like, I'm winning because I know what you're doing. Like, I know what my deck's doing, and I know what your deck's doing, and I'm going to play in a way that allows me to win because of what I know and the way that I sequence things. And that is what I love, what I can do in Magic. And I feel like I don't get that often enough sometimes. And I think that's, like, that's why you play Magic, I think, a lot of times, is to, like, feel like I'm winning because of what I did and the way I thought. Yeah, and and I think Ponce is a little bit of a unique animal because it does unfair things and fair things sometimes in this same game like yeah that's, tur- that's great that's a good aspect of it for sure turn two blood moon is is silly turn two chandras are just insane 
But at the same time, like occasionally you have to curve out too, and you have to play a turn two scoos and then a turn three clothes and just try to generate a little bit of value and crawl your way to victory. And knowing how to navigate both of those scenarios, I think is something that separates new Ponza players from more players who are even more experienced and better with the deck than I am, you know, looking at Odin in, in Norway and I, I don't know. I had a lot of fun with it, and I feel like if I were to make a single deck, my mascot for 2020, this is the one. And I love that I have it now, and I kind of love that I know what I'm doing with it now. Too. All right. I want to move us along because there's there's so many good notes here. I don't want to miss out on any of them. Surprisingly, we're running out of time. Yeah, okay. So um, this is where you get to be a little bit hard on yourselves. <laughs> Let's talk about our best and hopefully more content on our worst picks to click from uh, the spoilers this year our predictions on cards i'll start so in reviewing all of our picks to click episodes a couple of these surprised even me but <laughs> i was hot on shark typhoon which i guess is not surprising because it's a blue card that draws cards and scales and control decks so no wonder i'd like it but that's a card that's had a big impact on a lot of formats and that we were able to call it out so early feels cool. Mm -hmm. I was pretty into Sprite Dragon when that came out. It was in the it was an aspiring spike episode. I don't think Dave was on that episode, or else you would have talked about it too. I would I, have. I was not high on that card at oh, first, okay. but okay. I've grown in admiration for it lately. Uh, and then these are just a couple of honorable mentions. I really liked both Cleansing Wildfire and Seagate Stormcaller when they no. were spoiled. You don't get Seagate Stormcaller. That's a that's a, that's that's just happenstance. But I totally predicted they would go in like very different decks. I got the wrong format and the wrong strategies format for them. But I still pointed out that these cards are cool. Cool cards, bro. My worst pick. I'll, I'll just do both of mine back to back. Fissure Wizard. Fissure Wizard. <laughs> The two-drop goblin wizard at common that lets you discard a card if you so choose. Yeah. It basically lets you loot if you want to. No, rummage. Yeah. No, it's that's, called this rummage. is why I said it was bad. It's a, it's a rummage. Yeah, it's a May rummage ability. Whatever. Card's great. Everyone else is wrong. <laughs> and then also Labyrinth Raptor, another Rakdos two-drop that makes your menace creatures better. I just figured two-drop on common. Surely this would be good. Make your menace creatures better. Who wouldn't want to play that? Turns out not a lot of good menace creatures in, in the formats we play. Yeah. All right. My two best, I think, were... So I think my best one of the year was Scourge of the Skyclaves, which was one that I pre-ordered at a good price and felt um, pretty good about that uh, because it turned out to be pretty format-defining, especially in modern. Uh, the other one that I think as far as best picks go would be my favorite card of the year, probably, which is Stormwing Entity. Uh, which I think I was reasonably excited about in the spoiler episode and then got into it. It actually inspired me enough to try to brew my own version of Blue Red Prowess, which was kind of a weird little experiment for me for a little bit. Before, yeah, that's unusual for you. Yeah, before other people settled on much better versions of the deck than I did. My worst pick, or I would say, or one of my worst picks, at least that I remembered, was a Heart Fire Immolator, which is a two drop with prowess that I thought. Uh, might be able to get there because it had a sacrifice ability that lets you deal its power in damage to a planeswalker or creature, which I thought could be good after an attack or, you know, you prowess up and then kill something pre-combat to swing through with the rest of your team. Seemed like a possible thing, but just it wasn't really good enough. Uh, but I did not go through the notes. And so I would be curious to know if there is stuff that I forgot. Stan, did you see anything that you thought 
stood out? Yeah, there was this one moment that that sticks out. Uh, I even have a quote here. You refer to uh, a super awesome card, quote, hard to disagree with it being one of the best cards in this set. Any memory of saying that? So I I, I will tell you, I remember writing this for a card, but I don't remember what card it was. So please tell me what what it was. What if I told you the set is Ikoria, Lair of Behemoths? I lob. Oh... Nah, I still don't remember. It was oh, of I noticed. one mind. Yes, of one mind. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ah, yeah. Do yeah, you that's... still think it's one of the best cards in that set? No. No. Do I still think it's a card that might be something someday? Yeah, I do, I think. But um, clearly not yet. I mean, one mana for a divination is tough to um to turn away from. And so I feel like that's a card that's kind of going to be floating out there. I definitely tried some builds with it. I was super excited about it with young pyromancer, but um, yeah, I couldn't make those builds work. So I think it could still have life. I think objectively it's still a good card, but it needs a really specific home to work. Yeah. Maybe something with fissure wizard. Yeah, maybe Shane, Shane, you've had a lot of good calls this year. Well, I mean, so I think, this card, I think, sort of, I just wrote about it first. I think one of us would have wrote, written about Skyclave Apparition. It feels feels too easy. Like, I might not have actually given Skyclave Apparition enough hype. Like, Apparition is probably the best white creature printed in years, and it's been enough to make some white or white-adjacent decks viable again. Skyclave is the most played creature in modern, y'all. It's in 20% of modern decks on Goldfish, an average count of three copies per deck. Absolutely incredible that a white three drop is the most played creature in modern. It does so much. It really just does so much. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. I actually have a little bit to talk about this in a second, I think, too. Um, I'm also moderately happy with my call on Elder Gargaroth, which I put into like the playable sideboard card in Pioneer and or Historic. We weren't talking about Historic at the time. And I also think I was proven right by saying Chandra's Incinerator was not the truth in Burn. It's It's been there sometimes, but it is not there right now as far as I can tell. My bad take, um, I think, would probably be Fiend Artisan. In, in the set review, my notes said this was kind of absurd. Uh, I, I said it was like a toolbox in a beater. I said it was a birthing pod variant that could be collected, companied for at the end step. I thought it would go into like Vengevine, Yogmoth, Aristocrat style decks, and it's a commander card. Well, I will say this, Shane. Every once in a while, like a historic sacrifice deck will whip out this, or I, I think it sees playing the mono black decks too. And occasionally it comes out and I'm like, I have no way to beat this card. I am going to lose because I don't run Fatal Push and it is a 13-13. Yeah, I mean, I thought it had some legs. I don't know if it really does, but um, it's good for Commander. It's got six legs because it has like those extra (laughs) appendages on the side of its spine. All right. We had our best and worst picks to click. Let's talk about uh, perhaps our, our worst take on a sleeve believe heave episode or perhaps our best um you know something that we we said was a good deck or a not so good deck and we were proven wrong in the end yeah i listen 2021 challenge let's get stan to stop talking about elf decks i did it in the core 21 sleeve believe heave i did it with icoria i did it in the heckin mana traders qualifier episode Maybe Historic Elves can be my new outlet for for my favorite tribe, but until then, I have to stop putting these, giving this deck any airtime in our Sleep Believe Heap episodes. (laughs) 
We thank you, Stan, for your future commitment. Allosaurus, whatever the heck. Allosaurus parachuter is super good. Allosaurus Sherpa. Just wait till they make it legal. Come on now. I th- I think my my worst take on a sleeve believe heave was uh, Pioneer Oops All Spells, which if you remember, we played like I played like the week it sort of became a thing. Like this was brand new. Um, and I said like it was a mod- watered down modern deck. Uh, I was like, it's powerful and cute, but it's disruptible. Uh, it's not even guaranteed win if you go off. Uh, but now these 95 card Yorian versions, which is, is still just wild to me, is is the standard deck. And it's like one of the top tier decks in Pioneer, one of the powerhouses you're going to see. I definitely didn't give this deck enough credit and I kind of discarded it a little early. But again, like, you know, I was just net decking what was out there right then, but I was surprised to see it become a legitimate threat in Pioneer. Dave so has I, no I, notes for this section because no bad takes. I, uh, well, I, I was surprised. I just flipped through again to see if I could find a bad take really quickly. And guess what? No bad takes. Uh, no. Oops, the, no bad takes. Oops, no bad takes. Yeah. No, I um, I think that we were pretty good with our Sleeve Believe Heaves this year. I will say, in some ways, it was because we a lot of the Sleeve Believe Heaves that we did were decks that were pretty like clear that they were going to be great. Um, but anyway... I will dig deep into the archive for one that I think I missed, which is I don't, do you guys remember the Theros beyond death, uh, sleeve believe heave episode at all? Anybody remember that? Yeah. Do you remember what deck I played for the Theros beyond death episode? No, I played Demir inverter. Oh yes. The very first week that that deck came out and I, uh, I definitely was kind of like, this deck is not going to be good enough to be a problem in the format, I believe was my take after playing it. I think I said it was... Mossy said that too. Yeah, I think I I said that it was a real deck where I was like, yeah, I think that this is good, but I don't think it's oppressive enough. And I think I went like two and eight across two leagues with it. Like, So I was kind of doing a little bit of small sample size stuff there for sure. But uh, I think that would probably be my worst take then, that's... Inverter is nothing to worry about, everybody. Don't worry about it. You know, in the end, right now in December of 2020, you're absolutely right. It's nothing to worry about anymore. No. All right. Let's talk about not necessarily our takes per se, but looking back on the year of cards and and anything that sticks out to us as big movers and shakers in Magic the Gathering in general. Cards that define formats in positive ways and things that we are glad that we get to play with nowadays. Shane, best cards of 2020, go. Okay, I like Skyclave Apparition again because I think it's a great idea of a card and gives white a really important tool that doesn't need like a splash into blue, like something like uh, Deputy Detention did. It's honestly so good, I'm concerned. And, and it's so disruptive that I think it's going to be hated by a lot of people in the coming year or so because it has an Oko-like effect, right? It's like, hey, your card no longer matters. And it's really good at doing what it does. And that invalidation of a text box feels really bad, like somehow worse than just removing it in the first place. Um, And it's also, you know, it handles non-creatures, which is really strong and really important. Uh, And so I think that Skyclave is great and I'm worried it's too great. But I think just the weakness of white in general might keep it in check. 
I think this card is so important that it exists and it made an entire branch of decks kind of return to viability with a single inclusion. Yeah. You know, and I, it's on my list as one of the best cards of the year, just because I don't even play a lot of decks with it, but it's just like, number one, I need to remember that the card exists because a lot of times I'm playing decks now and I'm like, ah, oh, they're in white. They can't do anything. And then they're like Skyclave Apparition. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I also think the pathways are really important. I think they're like a novel land cycle. I think they're a fun idea. I think the art's really good. I think it does enough for the less powered formats that we care about to see play without seeming like busted. Would they have made your list if the art was not good? Yeah, they, uh, no, they would have been straight, <laughs> straight in the garbage. I gotta say, I, I'm bummed that there's no reason for these cards to make it into modern. Like, yeah, right? it's just not, it's not the right format for it. I don't think they're ever going to be there. You just don't need them. But uh, hopefully we'll get to play them a lot in historic. Stan, favorite cards of the year. So Skyclave is on my list as well. Uh, Clothis, obviously. Like, oh yeah, good, good pick, good pick. Love her in modern. I know you've been liking her a little bit more in historic too. Oh yeah. So that's cool. The fact that she made Ponza happen, I think is amazing. Um, Shark Typhoon. One of my favorite cards of this year. Um, just more reasons to play blue and hold up mana is fun. And I think we'll, we might debate this card a little bit, but it's so it does so much. And maybe that's the theme of the cards we like, the cards that do a lot. It, it draws you cards. It makes bodies. Sometimes it just makes a body every turn because you hard cast the enchantment and then you play a force of negation and it's a free 3-3 three, three with flying. I think it's a format, if not game-defining card in blue decks. So, mm-hmm. Shout out to Cleansing Wildfire as well. Yeah, that's a very cool card. Uh, I mean, you kind of covered the cards that I think are the best this year. I, Skyclave is on my list. Shark Typhoon is on my list. I mean, we already know what my favorite cards of the year are. I talked about Storming Entity and Scourge of the Skyclaves. I, I think that that's a pretty big roundup of like the stuff that was the most exciting to me to play, other than of one mind. So, so why don't we talk about the cards that we, by worst, we mean the cards we don't like, right? So here's what I have to say. Number one cards that I don't like from this year are the companions. I think ultimately, mostly because it was such a like bad design mistake, the way that they worked originally. Yeah. Horrible. And I think they've gotten better. They're playable now though. Like the rules change is mostly okay, but they're still all over the place. There's a lot of decks. We're going to be seeing Luris forever yorian it it is what it is let's see how long it takes until they move out of the format due to something else but yeah just something you have to consider like you have to consider yorian you have to consider luris they place pressure on certain types of games of magic and they're just things i don't like having to consider yeah and the design has to consider them too yeah and on deck building too where you're just like well i'm so close to being able to play gigantha i should cut this one card that seems cool and interesting so i can play a five five out of the sideboard yeah stanislav uh worst cards least favorite cards of the year so this is not format agnostic okay uro in pioneer and historic hate it hate it yeah. i don't hate it as much in, in modern uh I, I think that uro is a little easier to manage in modern than other formats but when someone gets an uro down in historic actually to stick around because they escaped it it just feels like gg so stupid and, and unfair and and just way above everything else in power level except maybe muxus for modern however dryad of the Elysian grove Ugh. yeah for real 
And not because the card itself is insane, but the landscape that it's in makes it insane. Because Dryad isn't good in Pioneer. It's not good in Historic. But what it does for Modern, where it just makes every land a Valakit trigger, I just think is so silly and stupid. Or every land a zombie. Well, I guess that would have been true without without Dryad. But the fact but that it makes every two land... lands. Exactly. Exactly. It makes every land two zombies. Every Land of Zombie is my favorite film critique YouTube channel. Subscribe. So that's me, Shane. Worst cards. Oh, I got a lot. Um, Triomes. I think they make mana too easy. It makes good stuff piles too easy. Making these typed was a huge mistake. Uh, it seems like mean to hate on mana, but like mana is everything in a game like Magic, and mana can be too good. It can enable things we don't always want to see. I think the Triomes are a mistake. Um, if they were just like the cons, Trilands with cycling, like maybe that's fine, but typed, crazy. Uh, Dryad, like you said, there's no reason for this card to exist besides Commander and making Titan too good. Um, Uro and Omnath, like the tag team of like the overpowered good stuff decks, like I'll give Uro an honorable mention for basically invalidating other mid range decks besides like a blue green base. Uh, I think it's just funny. It's like a funny switch up that you just gotta you gotta love it a little bit. Um, that Jund is now Uro based. I think Shark Typhoon was a mistake. I don't think an effect like this should exist. I think it's too good at doing what it does. I think there's like so little issue in playing a card like this most times. It's not an auto include, like it's not an auto four of, but it's just like, it's just a, just an easy card. Um, Heliod Suncrowned and what could have been like a cool white legendary God card. We got like this busted combo piece. It was seen a million miles away. Like you could have had Heliod on the other side of the Milky Way galaxy and people would have put these two cards together. Uh, the companions are just idiocy. Like even with the rule change, Yorian and Luris are ever present in too many games. And I, uh, I don't get it. So yeah, there's my laundry list. Uh, not quite of uh, cards. Cards Shane doesn't like. All right, let's get out of this section before Shane pops a nerve in his forehead. Muxus. <laughs> All right. So as we start to wrap up, just a few more headers we want to hit. Another positive note, a few more positive notes even. Our personal best MTG experiences of the year. We played a lot. We made a lot of content. We set some goals that we may or may not have reached. Let's talk about our personal highlights as Magic players for 2020. Did you do anything good this year? Okay. So... GP Phoenix and not because I day two GP Phoenix was because I got to travel with like Denver citizen of the nation, Spencer, who also drank horchata out of a bag, uh, met up with some awesome citizens and Dom and Mickey and maybe one or two people I'm forgetting about. I apologize. Uh, hanging out with like our now semi-regular guest host in Everett, uh, AKA aspiring spike. It was just a lot of fun. It was, it was also right before, you know, coronavirus stuff happened. And so uh, it was just the last big paper experience I could have possibly had. I'm just really glad I went. It was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. It reminded me of what was good about the gathering. Yeah, I had a lot of fun this year and it's hard to pick a single moment. So I will just settle on the time I decided to build Mono Green Tron because it was on <laughs> sale when Double Masters came out. I'll just say the best part of magic for me this year has been making this show with you two and with our excellent uh, supporters and listeners and everybody. Uh, it has been a major part of keeping my mental health together during the, the pandemic. And so I hope that, you know, as much as people have helped me through this by just having a little community to be a part of, I hope we have also helped you 
have something to distract you. You're here for sure. All right, let's okay. thank some guests. Yeah, we got we got to thank our guests. We had a lot of guests this year. Um, I'll do. I'll, let me do like four or five, and I'll pass it off. Okay, best guests of the year. Um, in Todd no particular Anderson. order. <laughs> Todd, I think it's in chronological, maybe. Uh, Todd Anderson. Uh, he's streaming a lot of Call of Duty more than Magic these days, uh, which is fair. It's been a year for Magic. He streams at twitch.tv slash strong underscore sad. Uh, Michael Rapp, guest episode. Uh, he still writes for Card Kingdom. The Pen Sword, another bonus episode. Um, apparently on a, an indefinite hiatus from Magic. Aspiring Spike, our buddy Everett, is still streaming full-time on twitch.tv slash aspiringspike, all one word. Uh, he has a great community. He's a great modern brewer, great uh, player, awesome regular coast for us. He's an asset to the community and to us as a podcast. Can't wait to have him on again soon. We've had trouble lining up uh, recently. Pass it over to you, Stan. Ryan Overturf came on for a bonus episode about prowess, still writes for Star City Games. Of course, shout out to Cave Dan co-host of one of our sister shows faithless brewing still one of my favorite magic podcasts that is not the dive down (laughs) very important part of the non-rotating format podcast family and we've always appreciated faithless brewing's dedication to making awesome content and, and putting their own unique spin on a podcast so you can check them out at faithlessbrewing.com uh, shout out to DZMTG, one of the other bonus episodes we got to do this year. I got to talk to him about making TikTok videos and other content. We mentioned it a few times, but Patrick Sullivan came on for a bonus episode. He still writes regularly over at Star City Games and is now working with Wizards as a game designer, as well as still doing some commentary for their live streamed tournaments whenever those happen. And Last but not least, Remy MTG still making hilarious YouTube sketches and music parodies. You can find him over at youtube.com slash Remy MTG, all one word. All right. So that was 2020 for the dive down. How do you want to close this out? Let's try to do it a little esoterically. And I want to ask you a broad question. Do you think 2020 was a good year for Magic the Gathering? I think 2020 showed me at least that magic is a flipping tough game to keep down. Like, I'm still not sure if that's like the hundreds of thousands of players just being afraid of like their collective sunk costs being squandered away, or if people just love this flawed and expensive card game and the community that's built around it so much that they will continue to play in any way that they can whether it's creating a, a community tournaments, whether they're, they're playing over their webcams or they're you know, playing on arena. There's, there's so many people that are still heavily engaged in this game and still loving it and still talking about it every day. And that's awesome. Like magic is resilient and successful, even though it's a you know, 26 year old paper game. Yeah. I mean, I think it's impossible by definition to say that anything had a good year in 2020, (laughs) right? But I think Magic has done as best it can. And I think that it's survived maybe even more than I thought it would. You know, I think that it's, it's come through better than I feared and maybe did even a little better than that. So we'll see what kind of interesting stuff is coming up in the next couple of years with new cards and Kaldheim spoilers and everything as we go on into 2021 and just kind of keep our fingers crossed for some kind of of a return to paper play. 
go from there. But I do think that, like Shane said, it showed the resiliency of people wanting to continue to play. I mean, you guys just stole my thunder, basically. (laughs) You you know, I think it it, kind of reveals a couple things. You know, something that Sullivan mentioned in that bonus episode is like, Magic's been around for a quarter of a century. Let's see any other game last this long. And he talked about things about like the stories that come out of in-game moments, like drawing that perfect card off the top of your deck or or flooding out or getting mana screwed, what have you, and how much that contributes to what this game means to people. And I think we saw that being as uh, basically this the thing that ke- kept us playing for so long. I don't think it was just about sunk cost. I think it was a about the fact that there's something about this game at its core and essence, whether it's how you play with physical cards on the table or how you move around digital objects on the screen that's really fun and conveys so much emotion and, and generates so much emotional reactions from players that it, it kind of proved to me that every time that someone says X is going to kill magic because of Watsi's decision, they're almost always going to be wrong until like the Renton, Washington disappears from the face of this earth or something because this game is is more resilient than i think anyone at least on this podcast might have imagined and one way that i'll illustrate this about myself is that you guys might recall like there was a point a few months ago where i started talking about the quality of magic the gathering as a video game where it's a great game but it's not a great video game and and i was starting to even question how long i can remain a magic player if i can only engage with it digitally And then after that, we bought into Historic, and I just feel so differently now. And the fact that there's ways to continue to expand our horizons and do new things that can be fun and can encapsulate who we are as players and on some level encapsulate our personalities a little bit, as long as that remains possible and as long as I can engage with this game with my friends and other you know wonderful people and like-minded players, I think... I can potentially endure this game as a video game for a lot longer than I, I used to think. Yeah. So, I mean, I just look at it like it it was a, it's a good year for magic in that people still care about the game. We still care about the game. Everyone's excited to come out on the other side of all this, hopefully, and experience the gathering again. And that's what I want to look forward to in, in 2021. And, um, yeah, I just think that everyone is, and I think that, we can enjoy magic for what it is in the meantime, and, and it'll only be better uh, in 2021, I think. All right. That wraps up this year of podcasting. Good up, guys. Good year. Thanks, everyone, again, for for being with us as fans and listeners, and, and likewise, our guests as uh, fellow collaborators. But we got to call it for today. If you haven't... I have one 2021 prediction before you go. I'm yes. going to predict that we are going to have dive down hats in 2021. I'm going to get these hats made, Stan. I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh, there was a prototype made. There was a prototype made. Stop doubting my hat, Stan. It's going to happen. Unless it's a fedora, I'm not wearing it. Ah, fair. Listen, if you haven't, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. Every Friday, if not sooner, in 2021, there will be an episode of the dive down. I think. I hope. I bet. Also, if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something related to Magic the Gathering, modern, historic, or even pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word. You can email the dive down at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitch, 
where we stream ourselves recording every Monday night, twitch.tv slash thedivedown underscore Shane. We like to stick around for a few minutes after recordings and, and chat with the people in Twitch chat and answer some questions there too. And that gets deleted right away. So if you're not there, this thing's gone. Until it comes out for the general public. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Joining at any tier gets you into our super secret Slack channel. Joining at higher tier gets you swag like tokens, signed cards, play mats, custom episodes, and apparently hats, maybe eventually, perhaps. Also, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the Dive Down. You can sign up for Mana Traders using promo code the Dive Down, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. If you play Magic Arena, you can support the Dive Down without spending any money using our affiliate link to download the free deck tracking software, Untapped. You can find that at untapped.thedivedown.com. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and have a happy new year!